0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
0: My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you another interview that I uh, conducted last week while uh, Robert was taking a break from work. That's right.
1: Once a year, I like to bury myself in some uh, sacred imported soil uh, and allow my, my body to break down and then reconstitute itself so that I can rise once more and be up to the challenges of podcasting in this day
0: and age. Today, we are going to be uh, sharing the conversation that I had with the British geneticist and science communicator, Kat Arney, talking about her upcoming book, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal. So a little bit of biographical information. Uh, Kat Arney hosts the Genetics Unzipped podcast, and she holds a PhD in developmental genetics from Cambridge University. She was a key part of the science communications team at Cancer Research UK from 2004 to 2016, co-founding the charity's award-winning science blog and acting as a principal media spokesperson. She's also the author of Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, and How to Code a Human. And she's written for Wired, The Daily Mail, Nature, Mosaic, New Scientist, and more, and has presented many BBC radio programs. Uh, You can find Kat Arney on Twitter at, at... Cat underscore Arnie, A-R-N-E-Y. And uh, I should note that the the book is coming out at different times in the UK and the US. So Rebel Cell can be found uh, in the UK starting on August 6th. And then in the US, I believe it's coming out on September 29th, but you can go ahead and pre-order it online. All right. Well, I'm I am
1: in a rare position here because uh, I am just like the listeners out there. I have not heard this interview yet myself, uh, so I am excited uh, uh, to, to to listen in as she sheds
0: light on this uh, this fascinating topic. Cat Arney, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: It's a pleasure to have someone on the show who has not only written a great book, but you are actually a podcaster yourself. So you're so you're used to this whole game, talking into the mic with uh, alone by yourself in a room. But
2: yeah, I've been making the Genetics Unzipped podcast. I do have to say that through this time, we've we've deliberately made it a COVID-free zone. So it is a currently a COVID-free genetics podcast. So uh, that that's been that's been a nice thing to do during during this time.
0: I got to say, I was listening to one of your episodes of the Genetics Unzipped podcast, the one about um, Maud Sly and Pauline Gross, which I thought was fantastic. Of course, it connects to the uh, book that we're going to be talking about today. So uh, a personal endorsement uh, from me of your podcast. I really like it.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's really fun. We we alternate, we do sort of interviews with scientists who are working now in genetics, but I also really like to go back through those stories and and dig out, particularly the the untold women who were often there doing the work, doing lots and lots of stuff, incredibly detailed observations and breeding experiments, and then basically didn't really get the credit for it because until the middle of the 20th century or later, women weren't really respected as, as scientists. So it's it's just a wonderful exploration. You come up with all these incredible people. Although, of course, in the early 20th century, lots of them do turn out to be eugenicists, but that's right. maybe a different podcast, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I think maybe a good place to start when talking about cancer, of course, your book is about cancer and specifically a lot about the genetics of cancer. I wanted to maybe start off by talking about this strange kind of gut feeling or almost superstition that – Somehow, unlike other diseases, cancer is a modern synthetic, uh, some kind of perversion in some way against nature, and that it sometimes comes with this odd edge of moralism that cancer is not just unfortunate, but it's somehow decadent and an indicator of something wrong with our age. Parts of your book indicate to me that you've come up against this kind of thinking a lot as well. What, What do you think this sort of thinking signifies?
2: I think it's absolutely fascinating. Cancer is not a new disease, and that really became abundantly clear to me. So just as a little bit of background, I spent 12 years working at Cancer Research UK, the UK's biggest cancer charity, answering lots of questions from the public. And all the time this question comes up, it's like, why me? Isn't it just a modern disease? Oh, it's all this stuff in the air. Oh, it's stress. What, what is it? And you start to look into what cancer really is, and it's it's ancient, it's hardwired into our biology because it's just cells doing what they're going to do. Cells multiplying, cells jostling for space, cells competing with the cells around them, obeying the, the processes of evolution. And so when you really start to look, it's not surprising that you find cancer going all the way back through human history, all the way back through the history of of animal life on this planet. But at the same time, when people start to become aware of cancer as a disease, they start to ask questions about, well, where did this come from? Why has it affected me? You start to get the uh, the Greek doctors, people like Hippocrates, who were writing about cancers in their patients and saying, well, what, what has caused it? It must be the gods. It must be the humours. Something is out of whack in here. And then you start to get the slightly more religious thing of, well, it is it, it sins visited on us. It is something to do with... Immorality, modern living, and then you bring up to to today this. We don't necessarily have such a, a strong religious view of it, but certainly the idea of almost wellness as a religion. You've done something toxic to yourself, and that's why you you now have cancer. And you look back at the the history of of cancer as a biological phenomenon, and that's simply not true. You know, it's it's basically like the dark side of life rather than anything that we have particularly brought on ourselves in our modern life.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I really loved about your book was the way you how you show cancer to be so fundamentally integrated with uh, with with life itself or uh, I guess multicellular life. Um and uh so so maybe we should focus on a on a couple of these ideas in particular one of them, I guess, is the idea of modernity, right? The idea that, that cancer is something that was very rare until recently. Uh, you make an argument against, and people have argued this, but you make an argument against this in the book, and you cite some, uh, both some reasoning about why a lot of cancers wouldn't necessarily show up in the kinds of remains we can examine, and uh, then pointing out examples that we do find, in fact, in the human record and, and physical remains of, of human society and prehistory.
2: Yeah, it's the classic thing in biology that you find what you're looking for. And people have not been looking for signs of cancer in ancient remains. And the thing about cancer is that that when you're thinking about ancient remains that we find, mostly you're talking about bones. And particularly when you get very ancient, you're talking about fossilized bones. And not every cancer leaves its trace in the bones. So when you're thinking about cancers that affect the soft tissue, uh, you you may never see the traces of a cancer that killed someone. Also, you know, ancient remains don't turn up in beautifully age-matched, structured populations. So you can say, oh, this is exactly the population that was alive at the time. This is exactly the number of cancers in this population. I think some people have argued that the fact that cancers are rare in ancient humans is an argument that cancer was very, very rare. But I slightly feel the other way around. I feel like the fact that the more people start looking for cancers in human and animal remains from from way, way back, the more cancers they start to find suggests that it was more common. We will never know how, how common it was because you can't do, you know, a lovely epidemiological study on the sort of stuff that you can get out of the ground. You get what you get and you get on with it, basically. But uh, I do think that Cancer is not an exclusively modern disease. I will say, certainly, it is more common as we live longer. So, another of the things I go into later in the book is the idea that there's almost a sort of a a shooting up point after you have got to a certain age, your risk of cancer does significantly go up. So, if you think about ancient populations, when there were many, many, many more things that were going to kill you, your chances of getting to an age where you could die of cancer before something else got you were smaller. So it's not surprising we find fewer ancient remains with cancer. But when you think about some children have been found with types of cancer that are very, very rare in populations, and the fact that we have found them at all suggests that this is a disease that has always been with us. And it's not exclusively a confection of modernity, it's it's basically, you know, it, it is with us and always has been.
0: And what about the part of the misconception that views cancer as something that is uniquely kind of human and maybe associated with uh, with the synthetic products of human industry and all that? Like, this ties into the idea that sharks don't get cancer, right? That uh, oh, there's yeah. a widespread <laughs> belief that, that it's, for some reason, animals that don't engage, you know, don't live in cities and drive cars and eat processed food and stuff won't get cancer, but they do.
2: Yeah, uh, this really blew my mind. I, I can see over on my bookshelf, I'm so tempted to go and grab it, but there's um, a book where someone has gone through all the different species that have been known to have cancer in. In some cases, it's many examples. In some, it's just a few, but it's pages and pages and pages. It's everything from like aard wolves to zebras. And uh, almost every branch of the animal kingdom develops cancer. Uh, there are a couple of really weird exceptions. So one is comb jellies. Uh, comb jellyfish don't seem to get cancer, never been detected. And also sponges, really weirdly resistant to sponges. There's this guy in uh, in Arizona, a guy called Carlo Maley, who is zapping sponges with enormous amounts of radiation, like that would kill a human and they're just fine they just shrug it off so there are some species that are cancer resistant but pretty much everything else to a greater or lesser extent is and humans aren't even the most susceptible species there are some that are much more susceptible to cancer than humans are so this idea that it's it's just a modern disease it's just a human disease it just doesn't stack up you know yes there are things that we do in our modern lives that increase the risk of cancer and our lovely living to a nice old age is a major risk factor. You know, thank God we don't all die in childbirth and have infectious diseases before our 10th birthday. But, you know, we are we are not, you know, unique and wonderful when it comes to cancer. Again, it is it is just part of life.
0: There are some other interesting observations you mentioned in your book about what might create a specific propensity for cancer in certain species versus others. Uh, one that I recall is that you mentioned that It's cancer seems to be more prevalent in species that have been through a genetic bottleneck at some point in the relatively recent past. So like if if, uh, their breeding population was reduced to a pretty small number at some point, they tend to be more susceptible to cancer. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, so that does seem to be the case, which suggests that there are genetic factors at work, because if you shrink a population down to a very small, what's called an effective breeding size, you've got quite a small population that's all breeding with each other, You do start to get a pile up of mutations being passed from generation to generation, which might be increasing the risk of cancer. Uh, One of my favourite species in this case is the Syrian hamster, which all the Syrian hamsters pretty much that are in pets and, and labs all over the world are descended from one litter of hamsters. And they are incredibly cancer prone because they're just massively inbred. Um, but yeah, every, every species, some more than others, uh, and some much less than others. So elephants, very surprisingly, you'd think when you think about it, logically animals that are very, very big, Mm -hmm. they have lots of cells. They live for a very, very long time. You would think that elephants should be riddled with cancer by the time they die but they are not they are amazingly resistant and really long-lived animals like bowhead whales even some of the really long-lived bats brand bats that live for 40 years very resistant to cancer so they have evolved mechanisms that enable them to live these very long luxury lifestyles and be resistant to cancer whereas you have very small rodents things that that live fast and die young why bother you know you're going to be around for a couple of breeding seasons and then you're out and humans are kind of in the middle you know we live for many decades we reach our childbearing years in you know between our sort of 20s to 40s hang around for a bit after and then the risk of cancer does start to go up so you know this is it's when you put humans in the context of all of life you start to understand how our evolution as a species is intrinsically tied to our as a species risk of cancer but you do have to separate that from personal risk of cancer as well. And that's a, that's kind of a bit hard to get your head around. So we're talking about evolutionary risks versus personal risks.
0: So one of the most interesting ideas in your book uh, that uh, that you keep returning to is a framework for thinking about multicellular life through the analogy of a society, that a multicellular organism is a society of cells. Could you explain this way of thinking and and some of the implications that extend from it?
2: Yeah, this really, really blew my mind when I started to understand this. So this idea of cells as a society, it goes back quite a few decades. A lot of the things I discovered while I was researching the book are quite old ideas that have got, you know, subsumed or left behind in this, this rush to just understand cancer as a purely genetic disease. But the idea is uh, that, that cells and organisms and individuals in a species, they live in societies and there are rules of societies at every single level. You know, things like do the job you're meant to do. Don't take more than you need. Clean up after yourself. Uh, all these kind of things. There are rules to societies that make societies work productively. And you start to look around at groups of cells that are in tissues and in organs in your body. You look at societies like ants and bees. You look at colonies. You look at troops of chimps and herds of deer. And you look at human societies. And they all work in the same way. And uh, this is particularly an idea that I was influenced by, there's a researcher in Arizona called Athena Actipis. And she works a lot on social cooperation and cheating. And the idea that cancer cells basically cheat in society, they are cheaters. They take more than they need. They produce waste. They proliferate out of control. They don't die when they're meant to. They are not good cells. Now, if every cell in your society was doing that, it would just be, you know, Mad Max style dystopia. Nothing would work. Your body would not function. But you can get away with being a cancer cell and cheating and keeping going and keeping going. Because to a certain extent, cheetahs do prosper. And it's the same in many animal societies. So one of the lovely examples that I found was um, these uh, Cape honeybees. So this just wonderful example. So Cape honeybees, they, uh, they have a classic honeybee population structure. You have the queen, and you have all the workers, the female workers, but the queen is the only one who gets to reproduce. And so all the workers are busy doing all the work in the hive, and the queen's just, you know, queening around, basically, like, ha um, and you know, popping off to reproduce when she feels like it. But there is a genetic change, single genetic change, that means that these worker bees can become queens. And they start to just sit around, you know, queening it up. And eventually the hive starts to collapse under the weight of all these cheetahs. And it's just a single genetic change that enables them to do this. And actually, some of these queens will go off to other hives and start to infect them and turn them into cheetahs as well. And it's almost like a, a bee cancer, I suppose, because ultimately it leads to the destruction of the hive. And you say, well, why would the bees have this? Why would it be so fragile that one genetic change can disrupt it like this? And it turns out that where the bees live, it's very, very windy. So there's a risk that if you just have one queen and that's all you get, your queen could get blown off course and you (laughs) might lose her totally and then your hive would collapse anyway. So the ability to flip into queen mode is really useful for the bees for their evolutionary survival, but it comes with a risk. And it's the same with cells. So we need to be able to make new cells. You need to regenerate millions of cells in your body every day, millions of cells in your skin, your blood, your bowel. You need to be able to heal yourself if you're wounded. You need to be able to grow from one cell into a, a, an adult human. Cells need to reproduce. They need to do stuff. flip side of that is that they can sometimes go out of control because it's the same mechanisms that make cells grow and multiply in the right way that they kind of harness and hijack when they decide to cheat and grow out of control in the wrong way.
0: So that's interesting. You're sort of showing how... Cancer is one side of an evolutionary balance where on one hand you've got you know as your ability to do something good goes up the risks associated with those same genes that code for that also go up so we know on one side what the downside is we can see tumors in cancer and you're saying that the the uh, the goods that make those risks worthwhile are basically being able to proliferate quickly in in cell growth and this would have to do not just with growth in youth but in healing and things like that
2: yeah exactly and you see this this starts to explain the differences across species because um if you if you cut a mouse mice heal amazingly fast their cells just basically knit themselves back together it's it's absolutely incredible um one of the stories that I discovered when I was talking to a researcher in Santa Barbara who's trying to work with the animals in the zoo to understand their cancer risks, She's, uh, she went to the zoo and said, can I get a little bit of skin from your giant tortoise? And they were like, hell no. You cut a tortoise, it takes a year to heal. And tortoises live for a very long time. They're incredibly cancer resistant. But they, the flip side of that is that they don't heal very easily. So humans, again, somewhere in the middle, we don't heal as fast as mice, but we live much longer than mice. So there's this, all of this stuff is a trade-off about the evolutionary journey that your species has taken. And one of the things that I sort of took this to its logical conclusion, and I was like, if there's aliens, aliens would get cancer. There's very unlikely that they would not. If they obey the general rules of evolution, and and this idea that like cells, organisms living in a society behave according to the rules of with, that we know make a good society. I don't think there's any reason why aliens wouldn't get cancer. She's <laughs> like, oh, that's a bit of a, that was a bit of a sort of late night thought, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, because ah, all that's necessary is that they they exist by cell division, right? I mean, that's pretty much it yeah
2: yeah exactly if you have cells and your cells are doing cell division and also if you have evolution by natural selection which is basically the engine that that drives uh cells to to proliferate and be selected for and to keep going and species to keep proliferating and keeping going then yeah you you probably could get cancer and that's what we generally see across the entire animal kingdom
0: Well, thinking about aliens getting cancer makes me think of another interesting part of your book, which was about difficulties in classifying what appears to be some form of uncontrolled cell growth in animals or even not animals, other organisms that are very different from us. So can you look at what's going on in a clam and say that it has cancer? Yeah, probably. But what about a mushroom or in an algae or something?
2: Yeah, this was, this was interesting. So, you know, what is cancer and when is cancer is an interesting question. And when you get to more organized animals and particularly mammals, we define invasive cancers as uh, cancers that kind of break through the the sort of molecular, I guess you'd call it like sarin wrap that's around your organs and your tissues. You know, they break through this membrane and that's what we call invasive cancer. But really, you know, the phenomenon of cells growing out of control is all over the place. You can see it in plants when they get galls, you can see it in, in fungi, you can see it in all sorts of things. And one of the interesting questions is, you know, something like endometriosis, which is a condition where you get rogue tissue within the body and it, it sort of, it grows and it spreads and it, it bleeds and it's very, very painful. It's like, but that's not cancer. It's not invasive. But actually, when you look at that kind of tissue, it has lots and lots of the kind of mutations and changes we'd expect to find in cancer. But that's not cancer. And that's in humans. So this this idea that, you know, mutations is not just what makes cancer. Uncontrolled cell growth is not just what makes cancer. It's it's sort of this this invasive, aggressive, evolving uh, characteristic that really is what we can classify as as cancer.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. So maybe we should shift to talking about uh, the history of our understanding of the uh, proximate causes, or maybe better to say the risk factors for cancer, where it comes from, whether that's uh, there's a hereditary component and an environmental component. Uh, There's a part in the book where you mention this thing that was called the Daily Mail Oncology Ontology (laughs) blog, which I really appreciated. (laughs) because uh, So the idea was this was an attempted list of all the things that either cause or cure cancer, according to the Daily Mail. And that made me say, I've got to admit something. I I read a lot of science and medical news for my work, and I have all but completely turned off my recognition system for articles about, you know, new supposed causes or cures for cancer, Uh, because this was already like a cliche to the point of being a hack joke for comedians in the 1990s. Is there something we should learn from this? Like the way that we get this conditioned kind of numb reaction to these types of news stories?
2: Yeah, that's we used to get a lot of that when I was at Cancer Research UK. You know, I think the the stupidest one was that water gives you cancer, uh, and also that turning on <laughs> turning on the light at night to go to the bathroom gives you cancer. So, you know, this is, this is really really frustrating. So there's kind of a couple of there's a couple of things to dissect because it also comes down to like what what is actually the nature of cancer and. The way that cancer has been thought about for a very long time is according to what scientists like to call the somatic mutation theory of cancer. So this is this idea that cells pick up changes in their DNA, in their genome, the the instructions that they use to do what they do. They pick up these changes, these mutations, and that enables them to do more bad things. And then they pick up more and they do more bad things. So it's this gradual accumulation of nasty mutations turns nice, well-behaved cells Into aggressive cancer cells. And we can start to see some of the the characteristic fingerprints that different agents leave in the genome. So we can see, for example, cigarette smoke or ultraviolet light from the sun. We can see those characteristic fingerprints of damage in the genome. What that doesn't necessarily tell us, because when you start looking closely at a cancer, or even in fact at normal tissue, you start to see these changes and mutations everywhere. So this kind of simplistic model that it's a a hit in this gene, 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 gene, and bang, there you've got a cancer cell, is, is nonsense. Because loads of healthy cells are just peppered with mutations. And loads of things do damage our DNA. And that's kind of like, it's mostly fine. So it's a bit more of a sophisticated understanding of, yes, there are things that damage DNA. A lot of them we know about, some of them we don't know about yet. Researchers are trying to figure out, you know, how do we match up these signatures of damage to things that are in the environment? Alas, mostly the most, single most damaging thing you can do for your DNA is uh, breathe oxygen. Um, literally just being alive, the processes of life in your cells damage your DNA, unfortunately. But then if all your cells are to some extent, you know, more or less messed up, everyone's got a few mutations here and there, some more than others. What is it then that tips a cell into becoming a cancer cell? If everyone's a bit weird, what makes that cheating cell kind of slip the bonds of, of good society and really start going for it. And that really is is an evolutionary question. That cell has evolved the capacity to do that. And um so I think it's it's far too simplistic to say, oh well, you know, your cancer was absolutely caused by smoking, that was it. It's like, well, that was a risk factor and it certainly didn't help. But there were many other things. And also many people who do smoke don't get cancer. So it's like, we've got to be more sophisticated in understanding what makes normal cells become damaged and what makes kind of sad cells become really bad cells.
0: Yeah. This is an important point about, uh, thinking about risk factors instead of causes. And I know that that's, it's infuriating to people, especially, I think if you don't have a lot of like, uh, training in a statistics-oriented field that it just doesn't feel very comfortable to think about, especially something that's a really important life and death issue like cancer in terms of probabilities. You want to know, like, what it was or what what did it.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think the best analogy that I really came up with is uh, – and this is spoilers now – if anyone's seen Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, where <laughs> – uh, and I am – this is a massive spoiler, but come on, the book's like – really old. You should have read out. out. You should see the movie
0: with Albert Finney, too. It's great. <laughs> there you go.
2: But it's a murder, but all the people involved, they all have a stab. So you never know who actually was the murderer. So it's it's kind of like this. So, you know, we have lots and lots of genes that we know are implicated in cancer. There are lots of things that can damage our DNA. There are lots of things that can like improve the environment of our tissues or not we know that things like you know keeping keeping well and healthy and doing all the boring healthy living stuff that helps to keep your your body healthy makes your cells more likely to fall into line but saying exactly like it was that thing you know it was it was that sunny holiday in Marbella in 1992 that damaged that skin cell that gave you cancer as i you know, that's that's simply not possible. So trying to say, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, do this, don't do that, I think is is not terribly helpful because at some point we've just got to get on and live and, and try and negotiate the risks that we're happy with taking.
0: Right. Though at the same time, you do point out how there are certain factors that increase your likelihood so far above the baseline that maybe at that point it Even though you still can't quite say it's a cause, it's something closer to a cause. I think one common example given would be tobacco. I remember you mentioned another example in the book about um, uh, just chronic exposure, dermal exposure to soot in uh, chimney sweeps, I believe it was.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this was the first example of someone actually showing that something, a substance in the environment could increase the risk of cancer. And this is an English surgeon called Percival Pott, who had um, a purely professional interest in the scrotums of young boys. Purely professional, because he was interested in um, chimney sweeps in London. Now, this was in the 1700s, and chimney sweeps were basically sent naked up the chimneys by gangmasters to clean the chimneys. So they were exposed to a lot of soot. And they noticed that they started to get these cancers in their genitals, and they were called soot warts. And these were very, very, very nasty cancers, um, yeah, really horrible kind of stuff. And Pot realized that it was the soot that these boys were being exposed to that was causing these cancers. And he said, right, you know, we've got to get nice... In, in Germany, that all the chimney sweeps had these nice kind of tight-fitting uniforms so they weren't being directly exposed on their skin. And he was like, right, we've got to get those in, we've got to protect these boys, stop sending them naked up your chimneys. Um, alas, it took over 100 years for people to actually change in Britain because the gangmasters were like, no, those... Those uniforms are too expensive. It'll make our sweeps too expensive. You know, they're, they're cheap. We don't really care. So that was really tragic that they managed to link this cause to these very horrible cancers. And there was something that everyone knew could be done that was helping in other countries. And uh, nope, nope, didn't happen for a very long time. Um, but yes, that Percival Pott is kind of the the father of this idea of external sources of, of carcinogenic chemicals. I think but I think it has stuck in the imagination that like it's all external it's all from from something you've done or something you've got or something you've touched or eaten or been exposed to
0: Well to go to the other side so uh, there's a, a part of your book where you explored I think we actually mentioned this earlier about uh, your podcast episode about Maud Sly and Pauline Gross and, uh, and and the role for example of the research of uh, Maud Sly in establishing that there is a hereditary component. To cancer, that I think at the time you say that you know the primary argument was about two different major theories of external causes, whether cancer was caused primarily by inflammation or by uh, infectious agents and parasites. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So the at the beginning of the 20th century, the early 20th century, there was this idea that cancer was either all caused by external things like soot, uh, things in the environment, or it was viruses mostly. There were a couple of good examples in animals where you could take viruses, expose the animals to them, and they would develop certain types of cancer. So the the first one was uh, a guy called Peyton Rouse who discovered a virus that caused cancer in chickens. So by the 60s, everyone was just obsessed with the idea that it was viruses. And now, you know, we really understand that there are uh, families that are affected by multiple cases of cancer, that cancer can be, to some extent, influenced by the genes we inherit. But really, this was a, almost a completely separate parallel strand running up through the first half of the 20th century. And it was work in mice, in families. Um, in, in the podcast, we talk about the story of Maud Sly, who bred all these mice together to show cancer could be inherited. And then the story of Pauline Gross, who was a seamstress who meant a scientist. And she said, you know, I, I'm going to die young. And he mapped out all her family because so many members of her family were affected by the same types of cancer. And it took, you know, decades until they pinned down the particular gene fault that was responsible. But yeah, all these lines were like running a completely separate to each other until it all started to coalesce together in this understanding that, you know, there are things that damage our genes. There are genes in our cells that that make our cells replicate, that, that stop ourselves from dying. This is good normally, but they can go wrong. They can be mutated. They can be changed. We can inherit versions that, that affect their function. And it all sort of started to coalesce into this very sensible idea of of how cancer starts. But I think it just became very, very focused on the genes and the cells, just you know, single genes, shopping lists of genes and changes. And forgot to look at this broader picture of the environment in which cells are, the society in which they're living, how they can interact with each other, cheat, overcome, expand, push against each other. This more, I hate to use the word holistic because it sounds really kind of hippy-dippy. But, you know, it's, it's part of our bodies. It's not an external alien thing. These cells obey the rules of our bodies to, to a certain extent. They cheat the rules to another extent but it's all kind of part of one piece. And we've just focused on on genes and molecules for the past couple of decades, I think far, far too much.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. So you mentioned in the book that you believe that the, the future of our resistance against cancer and medical treatments of cancer are going to rely on, quote, shifting towards a new way of evolutionary and ecological thinking about cancer. So uh, I assume there you're connecting to the ideas you were just articulating, but could you expand on what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so a- as all the sort of strands of cancer research over the the past sort of 100 years started to coalesce on this idea that that cancer starts when cells pick up certain genetic mutations and they go out of control. And then we started to get to this idea that then, well, the way you treat them is you find the molecules, the genes that are making them go out of control, and you target them with drugs. And that's going to be the way we're going to cure cancer. And there's been so much, so much effort, money, research, time, patients' lives in clinical trials have gone into testing these very molecularly targeted drugs. And you know, some in some cases there have been incredible success stories. So, for example, a drug called Gleevec for treating a certain type of leukemia is incredibly successful. It targets a very specific genetic fault in the cancer cells, and it is it it was game changing, and it continues to be game changing. But lots and lots of the other drugs that have been developed along these lines, they have not transformed survival in the way that we would hope. They've, they've eked out, you know, in some cases months, in some cases, you know, a few years. In one case, I saw a, a paper that said nine days increase in survival with this particular incredibly expensive targeted drug. And you're like, these are not cures. These, yeah, these, are, these are the magic bullets that we were promised, and they are not cures. And in virtually all these cases, the cancer comes back, and why does it come back? Because of Charles flipping Darwin. You know, it's it's evolution. You hit something, you get rid of most of the cells that are sensitive, and you've still got a core of resistance because you've got so much genetic diversity in that population of cancer cells, and so they start growing again. And this time, they're resistant to the drug. So maybe you try another drug. Same thing happens. You get rid of the the sensitive cells, you've still got a core of resistance and they grow back. And eventually you run out of options. And there's time now to think about cancer in a much more evolutionary and, and ecological way, as you say, thinking about, well, if we know that this process of evolution is at work, that if you get rid of the sensitive cells, the resistant ones come back, like, well, why don't we try and approach this in a different way? Why don't we try not to knock them all out. Why don't we try and balance these populations? Keep them suppressed, keep them under control, much in the way that say a farmer would try and control the pests in his crop rather than completely trying to nuke them all from orbit or eradicate every single last grasshopper. You know, and understanding the ecology, the tissue biology. So, you know, are you actually causing more damage? To tissues by treating with drugs or radiotherapy or surgery, how can we minimize that so that it doesn't encourage cells to, to cheat even more in a damaged environment? So it's this this idea is starting to come through, but I think um I think it does take a bit of a subtle and sophisticated understanding of cancer as an evolutionary process within the tissue environment of the body, rather than just like these are some rogue cells that have gone wrong and they're growing out of control and we just need to hit them with enough magic bullets and they'll go away. You know, the classic cure for cancer that that we've almost been sold. It's. I don't think it, it, it should look like that um, because we've tried that and it's not really working. So I think we need to try a different approach.
0: This way uh, of talking about tumors is reminding me of something you mentioned earlier in the book, actually, which I thought was a really interesting image that stuck with me the um the idea of a hypothetical hypertumor i'd never considered this before, but the idea that a tumor can get a tumor
2: yeah, so again it's the thing that really jumped out at me researching this book is that cancer is a microcosm of evolution it's it 's a a crucible of evolution, well, a dumpster fire of evolution is probably the best way of putting it. Cancer is a dumpster fire of evolution. There you go. Um, But yeah, everything, every innovation of life that you see on earth, cancer can evolve because you have a very large, genetically diverse population of cells that have got lots of opportunity to try stuff out. So, you know, it's not surprising that even within a horrible cheating atmosphere of a cancer, you might get some really, really badass cells that will start proliferating even more and actually suppress the original tumour by just out-competing them in in a Darwinian sense. And then there's some really wild things um, that I discovered. So, the the most crazy innovation is that a guy, uh, a guy called Kenneth Pienter in Baltimore, has discovered that cancer cells have invented how to have sex. This this really blew my mind because the implications are massive. Here, we have this idea that cancer cells they just uh, they reproduce basically by splitting in two. That's fine. You know, you have one cancer cell, it becomes two, it becomes four, all of that kind of thing. There's no transfer of information between cells and after that. But he's discovered with these prostate cancer cells that they fuse together and become resistant to treatments. And then they start kind of budding off little cells that are resistant to treatment. And you're like, what? You know, that looks like. Sex. I mean, for a very poor value of sex, but that, you know, that's the biological process of sex, is two cells fusing together and and creating more. And you're like, whoa. Because that's a way of genetically combining forces. And again, it's an evolutionary innovation. Sex has evolved on this planet multiple times. You know, it's not unheard of. And if you have enough rolls of that dice, as might happen in in a cancer you know, weird, weird, weird ass stuff is going to happen in there. Um, It's just, it really is mind blowing. Every innovation of life, cancer cells, you know, at some point somewhere might have a go at. And so when I realized this, when I realized that, you know, cells can have sex, cells can do all these kind of crazy evolutionary things, they can smash their chromosomes up, they can glue themselves back together. It's all kind of crazy. And then... I started learning about uh, the thing that that was just really incredible. So, right, imagine there's a disaster movie happening, right? You know what happens in a disaster movie. Uh, Everything's going wrong. You've got the guy and you've got the girl. And and what do you do when your world's ending, right? You you have sex, basically. So that's like a last ditch attempt for cancer cells to try and come up with some kind of evolutionary innovations that are going to get them out of trouble. Mm-hmm. but then there's one more thing that happens at the end of a disaster movie right you leave the planet sure <laughs> yeah and like and cancer cells do this and this is absolutely incredible so um so So this are, is where
0: we get to infectious cancer the idea that it could actually be contagious
2: yeah so this is this is kind of spooky and scary because it it's a very medieval idea that cancer is contagious, that you catch it from someone. And I will say that in, in certainly in, in humans, there's no contagious cancers that we know of. But the first example was uh, the Tasmanian devils. So this was back in the 1990s. The Tasmanian devils, they're all in Tasmania, Southern Australia. They're very cute animals, but like they're evil. They, um, they're very, you know, they're, they're placid more or less around humans, but they absolutely hate each other. So when you get two Tasmanian devils together, they're just like, really go for it. They're like biting each other's faces. Like, and uh, researchers started to notice that these animals were getting big tumours in their faces. And in some cases it, it was killing them and the, they're already endangered as it is. And this cancer started sweeping through the populations. And I was like, oh no, what are we going to do? And uh, a woman in Australia, she was working for the, for the government in a hospital. She's, she was looking at cancer samples from humans and looking at the chromosomes. It was a way back then of identifying the kind of cancer you might have. And so she started looking at these Tasmania devil cancer samples. Now, the thing about human cancers is every human cancer is a one-off. It's a unique evolutionary event. It starts in you, it grows in you, it evolves in you, and it, it dies in you one way or the other. When she was looking at these devil cancers, it's like, they're all the same. From every animal, the chromosomes were absolutely the same. And it's like, that does not happen. That is, she was like, this is a contagious cancer. And, uh, and eventually they kind of pinned it down and it said, yes, it was cancer cells transmitting from one devil to another through that mechanism of biting and fighting and scratching. So it's uh, you need, with a contagious cancer, you need to have a mechanism of transfer to get the cells from one organism to the other. So with the devils, it was, it was biting and fighting. Um, and then there was another cancer, contagious cancer, which, um, are, we, are we allowed to talk about dog genitals
0: Oh yeah, we we can. I just yeah. I
2: just did. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's a dog genital cancer uh, called uh, canine venereal tumor, uh, CTVT, and um, so yeah, it's again when when dogs have sex, it's not pretty, but they get kind of tied together in the 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 gentleman and lady department, and that can cause some injury. So again, you have a mechanism for cancer cells to transfer from one dog to the other. And this cancer, it, it transmits through populations. And, and there's a woman called Elizabeth Murchison, who's in Cambridge University. She started studying the devils. And then she started studying these dogs. And they discovered that these cancer cells in the dogs have been around for thousands of years. The first dog with that cancer lived and died thousands of years ago, and it's gone all over the world. And that's like, it's like the oldest, I don't know, it's like the oldest mammal, I suppose. It's just incredible. Um, this They've worked out what kind of dog it was. It was, you know, a little kind of dog with like pointy ears and a sandy coat. And uh, it's amazing.
0: So when you're saying it's the oldest mammal in a way, you're saying that the tumor is, in a sense, a part of that original dog. It is that dog. Yeah. It is yeah, that dog's t- body.
2: Exactly. The tumour arose in a dog. It's got the genome of the original dog like seriously messed up. I mean, it, and these cancers are now evolving independently in different dog populations all over the world. But yeah, it's, it's an incredibly long-lived uh, organism, I suppose. So that, that was one devil cancer, um, which was relatively recent, a dog cancer. And then they found a new second devil tumour that had arisen even more recently. So that's very unlucky for the devils. And they think it's because, again, they're quite an inbred population. So with this, this fighty-bitey mechanism of transfer, so you've got quite a high probability that this might happen. And then there's all these weird shellfish that have cancer and seem to transfer it between each other by shedding cancer cells into the sea, which is just disgusting, Um has made me rethink my idea of swimming. Um, But there's some really incredible examples of transmissible cancers in nature. And again, I think the more we look, the more we're going to find, you know, each one of these papers just gets published in a less and less impressive journal. (laughs) as more and more, more and more turn up. Um, But there are some examples in humans, and I, I talk about a couple in the book. So there's one which is they're absolutely horrendous, is a guy called uh, Chester Southam, who was in New York, I think, in the 50s. And he was doing experiments on prisoners, um, mostly black prisoners in the US, uh, people in care homes, can- existing cancer patients, people are very desperate, not consenting to these experiments properly. And he was putting cancer cells into them. And in some cases, they did developed tumours. Mostly they didn't, which shows the human immune system will fight these cells off, but some of them did. And also there's a very sad story of a woman who, um, developed melanoma. And at the time, this is around about the the sixties, I think it was an idea that you could transplant some cancer cells into someone to get an immune reaction going, uh, and then give that kind of blood back to the patient and it would help to treat their cancer. It's sort of an an early idea of immunotherapy. So basically getting someone's donor immune system to generate some antibodies to neutralise the cancer when you donated them. And so this woman's mother said, all right, I'll I'll do this. You you transplant me with a bit of my daughter's cancer, I'll generate the antibodies and then you can take my blood and, and give it to her. And unfortunately, the daughter actually passed away very quickly. And a few weeks later, it was discovered that the mother actually did have the cancer growing in her. And, and then shortly after that, the mother passed away from the cancer that had killed her daughter. And you're like, it's rare. Um, and probably because they were related, you right. overcome the the problems of, of immune rejection. But you're like, oh, it's like, well, it could happen. Uh, and then there's the most absolutely disgusting one, which is, this is really sad and awful, but also gross. Um, so there was a man who walked into an HIV clinic in Colombia, complaining of feeling very unwell. And uh, so he'd had HIV for a long time. So his immune system was very suppressed. He hadn't been taking his medication and he was feeling very unwell. And they looked in his body and they found all these little nodules in his body. And uh, and they were like, well, these don't look like human cells. This is very weird. And they were like, well, maybe it's a, a parasite or something. And they gave him some some treatment and he went away. And, and he came back and he's like, it's, it's still no better. And there's more and more of these weird things. And they looked more closely. They got them analysed and it was... He'd been infected by tapeworm, but the tapeworm had a cancer and the cancer had infected the man. And you're like, whoa, that is A, just the stuff of nightmares. Um, B, highlights how powerful the human immune system is at the best of times. And C is like, oh my God, Uh, you know, also tapeworms can get cancer. So... it sort of highlights a lot of the principles at work here and uh, very sad for that man, but unfortunately he couldn't be treated in time. Um, But it's like, this is an incredible biological phenomenon, really, that we we are only just starting to understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are all... Just unbelievable examples and and go in the column of, uh, you know, the case you make that we should shift toward that thinking of cancer in an evolutionary and ecological way uh, instead of a purely molecular way. So if if that's the dark side, what about thinking about cancer in an evolutionary and ecological way gives you hope? Do you see lines of research extending from that framework that give you hope for the future and of cancer treatment and uh, and the fight against cancer.
2: Yeah, so you know you can get very sort of nihilistic about this, and like, oh yeah, resistance always emerges. Evolution is is so powerful. But then I look at the kind of researchers that are really getting to grips with evolutionary therapy, and it's a growing bunch. It's all started, particularly I think, from the Moffat Cancer Center in Tampa, and Florida. And uh, a man called Bob Gattenby and his team there, and they are just really incredible people so i mean i'm I'm a biologist, I am biased, I will say against mathematicians and physicists, but it turns out <laughs> the secret the secret weapon in the war on cancer is maths so um there you go, so he's brought together all these mathematicians and biologists, and they're actually doing evolutionary modeling on cancer populations trying to understand the rise and the fall of resistant and sensitive cells trying to go okay if if resistance is going to emerge when you treat can we predict how that's going to happen how do we kind of let cell populations balance themselves out and stay in control rather than just you know nuke it from orbit which is kind of the conventional idea about cancer therapy and so they've, they've done a... Their most successful clinical trial so far is in prostate cancer. And it's, it's an absolutely fascinating trial of an approach that they call adaptive therapy. And the way it works is you assume that within any cancer, at any size, there are going to be sensitive cells to the drug and there's going to be resistant cells to the drug. And it's a drug called abiraterone that they use. And so what you do is uh, you... You also have to have a marker that will tell you how much tumor is in anyone's body at any given time, and for prostate cancer, we have quite a good marker it's called p s a so you can look at someone's p s a level in their bloodstream and say, "Okay, that's a proxy for how much cancer is in their body and so they start treating this these men with prostate cancer advanced prostate cancer, so they're they're probably their their life expectancy is, you know, about 18 months on this drug before it starts to get really gnarly for them. And, uh, and they treat them with this drug and it starts to work and their tumours start to shrink. And then the difficult bit is you wait till it's shrunk to half the size it was, and then you stop treating and you wait. So the idea is you've knocked down all the sensitive cells or as many of them as you, you feel the urge to, and there's still some sensitive cells there which are keeping the resistant cells in check. And then you wait. And you wait for them to grow back. But because being resistant to the drug is kind of it's 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 not very good for you. These cells are less fit. They struggle to grow as much. So it's the sensitive cells that grow back. And so you treat them again. And so you ride this kind of roller coaster of start the drug let the tumour shrink, stop the drug, let the tumour grow, start the drug, let the tumour shrink. And they have men who've been on this regime for four years. I mean, gradually in the end, the tumour does, the cancer does start to evolve because that population of resistant cells does start to get bigger very slightly every time. But this is, you know, if this was a drug and you were saying I've gone from average 18 months through to four years, you know, if this was a drug the industry would just be throwing itself at trying to to get this, you know, get this to the clinic, get this to work, get this to everyone. So that was that was a really powerful demonstration of an evolutionary therapy of understanding and accepting you've got these cell populations in there and they're kind of how to balance them. There are other sort of uh, adaptive strategies, evolutionary strategies. There's one called the suckers gambit, which is <laughs> where you treat cancer cells with a drug that you want them to develop evolve resistance to. But you know that for them to have evolved resistance, they have to have activated certain molecular pathways. They have to have gone down an evolutionary route in one direction. And then you hit them with another drug that they can't get out of. So you sort of, you, you get them into a, a blind evolutionary end. It's like a, a double punch.
0: Seropidope.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's lots of ideas out there about using the drugs we have, maybe even using drugs that are less, you know, less good, I suppose, less potent, less, uh, less toxic, because you don't want to just nuke everything. You want to start thinking about how to balance cells, how to control cell populations. But this comes to the really difficult thing, which is the psychological element of this, because this is not the cure for cancer that we were promised. This is not the magic bullet. This is not eradicate it from your body. There may be some approaches where we actually can. And, you know, the the earlier you can diagnose cancer, if you can treat it with surgery, um, some cancers can be treated really effectively and cured at an early stage. But for cancers, once that evolutionary process has really kicked off, you have to approach them with an evolutionary mindset. And that may mean driving them to extinction with the right combination of sort of, uh, extinction events at the right time. Um, but it's, uh, it's not going to be this kind of perfect cure that I think people want that we've been led to expect. And it, it certainly won't be one magic bullet drug that like, yep, that's it. That's, that's the cure. That's it. We can now, you know, sell this and give it to everyone. Because as I said, you know, every every individual's cancer is a is a one off it's a special snowflake it's an individual evolutionary event so we need to understand that where is it going what's it doing what are what are the contingencies in there and how can we either drive this cancer to extinction or drive it to a place where we can control it for the rest of someone's natural lifespan and you know that's not a cure for cancer but to me that's you know I, th- I think that's getting there.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that. Th- thinking of the body not like as a malfunctioning car with a part that needs to be replaced or fixed, but as an environment with natural populations within it that and the relationships between them need to be managed –
2: Yeah, sort of tending the garden is is the idea. But you can take the ecological thing further. There are different sorts of cancers. You know, some are lush, exotic rainforests that are really going for it. Some are arid deserts. Some are more like, you know, kind of neatly tended gardens. Uh, But we've got to understand what each person's cancer is really like and how it's behaving, not just a, a shopping list of mutations that you can try and fire magic bullets at, but uh, a much more holistic understanding and accepting that evolution is going to happen. Always has done. That's why we're here. That's why the diversity of life is here. But if we can harness it and work with it, then I really think we can start to make some progress in, in some of these most difficult advanced cancers.
0: All right, I guess we will wrap it up there. But again, the book is Rebel Cell. Uh, it's a fantastic read. We, we really think you'll like it. And also, uh, you can check out Cat's podcast, the Genetics Unzipped podcast. Is there anywhere else they should look for your work right now, Cat?
2: Um, ooh. <laughs> uh, my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, is available. Um, I've got another book called How to Code a Human, and uh, you can find me at uh, on Twitter. I'm Cat underscore Arnie. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Everything's pretty much there.
0: All right. Well, that does it. Thanks again to Kat Arnie for joining us for this discussion. Uh, Again, if you're trying to look her up, you can find her on Twitter at at Kat. K-A-T underscore A-R-N-E-Y. And if you're looking for her book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal, uh, the UK version is coming out on August 6th. The US version is coming out on September 29th. You can pre-order now, I believe. If not, keep an eye out for it. And uh, you can also look it up on her website at rebelcellbook.com or check out her work on the Genetics Unzipped podcast at geneticsunzipped.com.
1: It's just such a great book title. I just, I keep coming back to how much I love that book title.
0: It really is great. And uh, and it has some resonance throughout the book with some other themes and, and metaphors she discusses in there, such as the Society of Cells. So Robert, I really do recommend you read it if you get a chance. I, I, I really enjoyed this one.
1: All right. I'll have to look for it in September. In the meantime, if everyone out there would like to listen to additional episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find us absolutely wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Those are three things that you can do that just really helps out the show.
0: Another thing you can do is, of course, just tell people about the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.